Episode 13, Wider Square Revisited with Neil Bell. I'm Jonathan Mengus coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. Joining me today is Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Mike Covell in Hull in the UK, Jana Oliver is in Atlanta, Georgia, and Neil Bell is in Leicester in the UK. Uh, thank you, Neil, for coming on. Pleasure to be here. And thank you, Jana Oliver, for being with us today. Hey, it's going to be fun. Yes, it should be. Um, Catherine Eddowes was 46 years old when she was found murdered in Mitre Square, City of London, on September 30th, 1888. She was born in Wolverhampton and was the sixth of nine children who survived infancy. But by the age of 15, both of her parents had died. Um... Many of her siblings went either to an orphanage or to workhouse or to industrial school, but she uh, was able to work for various relatives, and she worked a few odd jobs for a very short time before she fell in with Thomas Conway. And together they sold chapbooks on the street. And while with Conway, she gave birth to a daughter and three sons. She split with Conway in 1880, either because of her drinking or of his abusive nature or a combination of the both, and she soon found herself in the East End, where she again did whatever work came her way and probably resorted to prostitution. She met John Kelly while staying at 55 Flower and Dean Street, and they remained together until her death. Um, Neil, you uh, gave a presentation at the last uh, UK Jack the Ripper conference in Wolverhampton entitled Mitre Square. Uh, could you give us a, a, a little bit about um, that presentation that went over really well? Yeah, um, it really was born out of the article I did for Ripperologist um, with uh, a guy called uh, Yako Lucan, better known as J.K.L. Um, basically, we got together and, um, well, rather, I contacted Jake, so I saw his uh, images, I don't know if anybody's seen them, um, on the casebook, his uh, CGI recreations, though he loathes me calling them those. Um, and I thought they'd work really well for uh, what was then, and still an eBay, uh, email-based uh, magazine, Ripperologist. So I contacted him. Um, basically, what I wanted to do was recreate the events um, around Edo's murder, roughly on the, um, from around about 8 o'clock when she was picked up by the police to just after uh, the discovery of her body, and basically see it through the eyes of witnesses who were there. 
Um, I asked Jake if it could be done, for example, view certain angles of the square through Pierce's window, the collapsed window, through the eyes of Harvey, so on and so forth. He felt it could be done. He had a little play around with his uh, computer, come up with some amazing images, and it really took off from there. Um, after the, we, we did the article, um, Adam Wood, who was organising, or rather co-organising the conference, sent me an email and asked if I basically wished to wish to talk about um, the article and, and just recreate what I've done verbally, um, which I agreed to. So basically, it was just a run-through, um, like I said, the, the, the final moments of Catherine Eddowes. And I felt it was more of an aid to myself, really, because um, it can get quite confusing going through who did what, when, where, and you know, a lot of actions cross over, don't they? So it, it was really, like I say, it was born out of that. Um, and, and yeah, the talk went down surprisingly well. I, 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 I was very surprised with it, to be honest with you. Neil, um, are three-dimensional recreations of the murder sites uh, just the beginning of, of using this sort of technology and providing ripperologists and civilians alike a new and possibly superior method of understanding the Whitechapel murders? Um, in terms of understanding, yes. Um, obviously, we won't get any answers. There won't be anything. They won't bring anything new to the case in terms of solving the case. But uh, in terms of um, getting an understanding, especially for people who are new to the case, I think it, it, it is the way forward. I mean, I can read a passage describing something three or four times and probably come up with three or four different images. Whereas what Jake does is extensive research. I mean, he overlays four or five maps. He even gets the textures of the bricks. You know, the guy is really thorough in what he does. And I can just look at that once and know exactly what the situation is, what it was like, what it looked like. So in terms, like I say, in terms of understanding, I think it is, it is the way forward. Yeah, I think, I think we'll be pro progressing onto that. It will come out of book form. And onto, I mean, it's already doing that already. It's already coming onto the computer. I think that is the way forward. Okay. You can imagine so somewhere down the line where they'll actually have holographic mitre squares where you can look at it in 3D in front of you in the air, sort of like Star Wars. That would be so strange to, to, to actually look at way the way you know, the square looked in 1888. Well, it, it's funny you should say that, Jana, because um, what, what we did for the conference was that Jake actually did what he calls a walkthrough, which is a series of pictures, one after the other, that walks you through, through the event. And it was going to be of um, the Levando Levy and Harris sighting. And you were basically going to walk through what they saw and how they saw it. Unfortunately, due to time restrictions and the fact that it was on PowerPoint, well, I sort of dropped the idea. But um, I know, and again, you probably won't thank me for saying this, I know Jake has got some new software and he's sent me a couple of uh, things that he's done. I won't say what they are, but believe me, they are outstanding. They're, they're a lot smoother than what, what he showed me. Oh, and, uh, wow. There are actually moving images. Um, like I say, I'm not going to say too much about it. That's up for Jake to, to disclose. But um, I was very excited by seeing So does this mean then at some point in the not too distant future we'll actually get to see full, fully rendered 3D interpretations of the murder sites and 
surrounding locales that people would be able to actually walk through? Um, I wouldn't say not too distant future, but um, I don't know the timeline that, that Jake's working on, but it, it's something that I know he is working on, and it's something that I know he's interested in doing. Um, like I say, he's done, he's done a few, few images for other things, um, but it, it was a new, basically it was a new software that he was showing me, he was just playing around with it, and he, his, his actual words, I've not mastered it yet, just something rough, have a look, let me know what you think, and I'm thinking, wow, if that's what he's like when he's not mastered it, but it will happen, um, it's just a case of when. But it will happen, yeah. I'm um, back to um, Edo's um, and the night of her murder. Well, let's let's start off with um, what what is a, an assumption that um, seems like a pretty safe assumption to make, and that is that on the night of her death, um, she was uh, practicing prostitution, and. Um, and that's just repeated. Everyone assumes that all of Jack the Ripper's victims were, were casual prostitutes, and, and that's how he uh, chose his victims. Um, but it is interesting that in her case, um, in the inquest, um, no one that appeared at the inquest who knew her personally uh, fessed up to her um, at any time. Uh, resorting to prostitution in order to make money. Um, what are your views on that, Neil? Well, um, I'd say more of a casual prostitute myself. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to look at the location where she was found. A dark corner, or rather the darkest corner of the square, not too far away from the main thoroughfare, as happened with Nichols and Chapman as well. Um, so, so that in itself indicates that she was, I'd say, soliciting. Now, the question is, like uh, as you mentioned earlier, is it, is it a casual thing or was that, for the want of a better phrase, her job? Um, I don't think it was uh, a full-time prostitution that she engaged in. I think it was a casual thing. I mean, she'd come back from popping um, a few, few uh, well, only a few days before she was murdered. Um, and apparently she didn't pick, or rather her and Kelly didn't pick up uh, much money from that. So I feel it was more of a casual thing than a, than a, than a full-time thing. I mean, she, she's also given a false name um, to the police, which is a, a, a prostitute's trick. It's, it's, it's something that they used to do. Uh, so, so there are little indicators like that that, that will say she, she's... I don't think she was, she earned most of her money hawking. Let's put it that way. Now, do you think that she may have? Um, and this is open to everybody. We can all chime in here. Um, that that she may have been uh, maybe hiding the fact that she was engaging in casual prostitution from John Kelly, um, and and then and then on top of that, also you had mentioned that she gave a false name to the police of uh, Mary. Ann Kelly, I believe, is what she called herself. Is that right? Um, when uh, she was identified um, by... It seems like she gave a false name to a lot of people, um, not just to the police. Uh, some people who I try, attempted to identify her body at the uh, 
at the mortuary thought her, that that was Jane Kelly um, and um, and so she did use an alias which I agree is a is a, uh, a tr what, what many of the prostitutes did um, but but it seems like she she went by several different names not just to the police but to people who would she would run into and acquaintances and stuff at the lodging house so first let's uh, let's see if anyone believes that maybe John Kelly was being honest in his inquest testimony when he said that he never suffered her to go out onto the streets and such. Anyone? I think he was just being polite. Um, it, as, as has been mentioned, possibly the idea that he was trying to cover that they might think he might be pimping for. Her. Or the other thing, it just might be a matter of pride that the woman had to go out to do this on the side. I, I find it interesting that she said she was going to go visit her daughter, but as if, and I'm, if I'm getting this correct, the daughter hadn't really been in the location she said she was going to visit for quite a while. And so I wonder if, if uh, Kate was just telling Kelly that to make him feel good if she came back with more money. You know, then, you know, say, well, I, I've got it for my daughter, even though he probably wouldn't see her, you know, get uh, meet the daughter. Uh, and so that it was just kind of covering where she was getting her, her source of, of income. Right. That's 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 kind of what I. So in a in a way, maybe uh, Kelly was being honest. Um, well, I mean, he he may, he he probably knew what was going on, but but mm -hmm. um, but yeah. At the same time, I mean, he, he you know, matter of dignity. Yeah, if he had genuine affection for her, he was going to feel bad if she had to go out and hike her skirts to to uh, to keep them fed. So. Right, Neil. What do you have? Uh, I agree. Yeah, I think that's probably more than likely the case. To be honest with you, it's a case of denial. I suppose. Yeah, because yeah. the, at the inquest, he he basically says two separate things. He says first that um, um, he, had, like I said, he had never suffered for her to go out. Um, but then when he was asked directly if he ever knew for her to be walking the streets, he says something to the effect of, "Well, we." we didn't have money for our lodgings um, as an answer to whether or not she was in being, is she ever engaged in prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have Wilkerson, I believe his name is the uh, deputy of Cooney's um, at 55 Flower and Dean Street say not only that, that he didn't know her as a prostitute, but I think he was also the one who said uh, that he didn't believe she um, had had any other man but John Kelly or something to that effect. Which uh, is interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Mike in Hall? Yeah, on the subject of... Uh, are we still discussing whether or not he knew about this? Um, at the end of the day, I think it's a matter of pride. No man wants to admit that you know his partner's doing that sort of thing. Um especially to, to something that's going to be, you know, put down on paper and people are probably going to read the next day. Um, you know, people in the East End are, are not silly. They'll, they'll sort of read um, the newspapers and find out, you know, what this woman was doing. Um, so for him to sort of say that in a way is protecting her um, and, of course, his own reputation as well. Yeah, and it, and it was... A, and it's like um, there seems to have been a collective... Um, uh, effort at the inquest to hide the fact that she was a prostitute, and because when you have Eliza Gold, her sister, uh, deny that uh, 
she was ever a prostitute. Granted, Eliza Gold had last seen her four to seven weeks or something like that before her death. But then you have the <clears throat> the lodge. I mean, maybe they all had something to hide. You know, um, the lodging housekeeper not wanting to uh, run a house of ill repute, or you know, uh, protecting what kind of activities going on in in, in the lodging house. And, yeah, I have a question for Neil. Uh, personally, I think the biggest irony in the Mitre Square murder is that had Kate Eddowes had been arrested 300 yards away in Met territory, she probably would have lived, since she would have slept the entire night in jail and not been released. How do you how do you look at that, Neil? Yeah, that was uh, rather unfortunate, um, to say the least. And uh, see, that may be the reason why she worked that area, if indeed she was a prostitute. Um, I mean, uh, for, for the benefit of the listener, um, Met Police, when they arrested drunks, kept them in overnight and they were released early in the morning. City's police policy was that they actually kept them in until they were deemed sober. And that will be the, um, the station sergeant or the inspector who would um, verify whether they were sober in their view or not. Um, now, now, Edo's worked, or rather it would seem that she worked the Oldgate High Street area. Um, there was a report that a police officer recognised her uh, as work in the area. Um, the fact that she parted with uh, Kelly in Houseditch, again, that's right on the border of City and um, Met area, would indicate that she, she was heading uh, towards, towards the city area. Um, so she, she may have actually chosen that. It's just an idea. It's not, I'm not saying that's certain. But it's, she may have chosen that area simply because she knew that if she did get picked up for being drunk and disorderly, that she would be released again once she sobered up. So therefore, it bought her a little bit more time to earn that little bit extra money. Hmm. Yeah, that, that follows... Um, I was going to follow with that. Um, do you think that other prostitutes were aware of the different procedures of the two different police departments? They've been picked up enough times, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, especially if you're long in the tooth in, on the game, as it were, you would know big thing. Now, I, I have an odd question. What does it take, what would it take to get, if, if these ladies were used to drinking, or Kate was fairly adept at drinking, how much would it take in Victorian England of whatever they were drinking to get drunk to the, the, the extent that she was? I mean, that, that indicates a fair amount of uh, disposable cash. Admittedly, it wasn't very much for, for a wee bit of gin, but that, that indicates either somebody was buying her the drinks, or she made some money between the time she left Kelly and the time she ended up, you know, in, in jail. But uh, I, I always wondered about the drunk thing, because I'm going, you know, if you're fairly acclimatized to drunk, uh, to, uh, to drink, then that's a fair amount of, fair amount of booze. Yeah, um, she, did she, I think she left Kelly around about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's about correct. And she was picked up around about 8, 8.30 by mm -hmm. PC Robertson. That's a fair few hours every drink. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I look at Edo's is... is and I can't help doing this, um, is uh, if you look at Coles and Sadler, Sadler mm -hmm. was lost, he'd just been paid, he picks Coles up in a bar and they spend mm -hmm. most of the evening and the next day drinking together. Drinking. So, yeah. very, very similar situation with Eddowes. I mean, where she was found, um, well, supposedly outside 29 Oldgate High Street, which didn't exist, Robinson was just picking off a number. The <laughs> yeah, he just picked her up. Um, and <laughs> yeah, but um, it was um, right next to the Bulls. I think it's the Bulls Inn. Mm -hmm. 
there was quite a few drinking establishments as with any high street, not only in, in the East End, in London, in the UK, anywhere, any main thoroughfare, there's quite a few pubs. So, to me, it would seem that somebody was buying her the drink. I don't think, well, probably a mixture of both, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I mean, she picked someone, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at it, it's, it's fairly light, it's September, it's fairly light until cool, about six o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, where would she go in daylight with, with, a, with a, a stranger or a punter or whoever you want to phrase it to, to, do, to do the deed? Mm-hmm. Uh, available. Well, probably. So, you know, it's more of a promise, I would think, for later mm-hmm. in the evening. Which is probably why she asked the time of put when she left Bishopgate. What's the time? She may be meeting up with, with a bow um, a bit later on. I don't know. Yeah, she she still owes him a you know payment for the drink or exactly yeah. Just uh, quickly going back to the subject of false names. Um, what do you think about Edo's using the names Jane Kelly and Mary Ann Kelly? Do you think it's just pure coincidence? Is that for me? Yeah, anybody? <laughs> sure, you go. Um, I, you go. I think well. Well, obviously, the surname Kelly is a match with John Keller. Um, Mary Jane is, especially with the surname Kelly, is, is a fairly common Irish name. The, the area around Spitalfields was um, fairly heavy with Irish. Um, not not as, as, as many as the Jewish, obviously. Um, I just think it's a coincidence myself. I don't read anything into it. And when she pawned the boots, um, she gave the address of 6 Dorset Street and under the name of Jane Kelly, um, which is even more of a coincidence, I guess, because she, she, she wasn't even staying at 6 Dorset Street, but at 26 Dorset Street was Mary Jane Kelly. So. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good point, actually, Jonathan, yeah. Yeah. Neil, I have another question for you, buddy. What do you think of uh, the author Trevor Marriott's position on why Catherine Eddowes apron was cut? Um, he believes that she used that for uh, perhaps to some kind of facility of uh, relieving herself. What, what do you think about that? Um, she was found with, uh, I do believe, was it 12 pieces of uh, rag, um, small squares. On a person, and these um, pieces of rag had uh, small blood stains upon them. Now, I'm led to believe that um, rags were used in Victorian times by women on the menstrual cycle. I can't really understand where Trevor's coming from with that one, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, for, for a start off, it's her apron. I mean, she's got 12 pieces of rag on her, yet she chooses <laughs> to put, put the apron up. I don't right. understand the logic behind it, you know. A, a right. dirty, a, a dirty apron at that, you know. Right, right. And an apron, an apron was uh, for somebody who didn't really have uh, too many worldly possessions. It was uh, fairly valuable. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something that you uh, do, do with ease, with you know, flippancy. It's just, it's, you know, like I said, I still kind of say she's got twelve pieces of rag on there, small rag already cut to size, and yet she goes and tears her apron off. It's just illogical to me. Right. And there's also there's also a um, report in the Times, I think it's October the 11th, 
obviously in reference to the um, Lavondo and um, uh, Levy sighting. Um, now it's not mentioned in any inquest or any report, but in, in the Times, in the Times report, in the news report, they they actually put, and I'm, I'm quoting here that uh, they, meaning the two witnesses, recognised on the account of a white apron she was wearing. So, unless since Lavonda and uh, Levy saw her, she nipped quickly over to Dawson Street with the guy she was with, if he, if we, it was indeed Jack to cut the apron up and place it there herself after using it as a pad and then scooted straight back over to Tomato Square to, to be murdered. I, I can't see... Again, I can't, it just doesn't add up. It's, there's a lot of things against it, very few things for it. I mean, to be fair to Trevor, I mean, he's thinking outside the box, as it were, to coin an awful phrase. Um, but but, but that's, that's a little bit too far out the box and probably out the shop. So you're saying there is a Times report that stated that they uh, that the sorry, sorry. that the witnesses actually saw um, her wearing a white white apron on top of being able to identify her clothing by the black bonnet and black jacket. But there is that, yeah. I mean, obviously it's a news report. I mean, do we take credence in that? I mean, it's the only report I can come across. Um, so so maybe that that's probably you know. Huh. But 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 the 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 thing that like I say she's already got squares already cut up. I think there were twelve of them, twelve small squares. They'd be, they were spotted with blood apparently, so it would seem that they've probably been used before. Um, so mm, I, like I say, it just doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, while we're on the subject of possessions, um, one thing that's always interested me is why have two black pipes. Um, as well as a cigarette case. I mean, surely it would be either one or the other. Um, that little thing's always confused me as to why. You know, it said she had the two short clear black pipes um, and the red leather cigarette case with white metal fittings. Um, that to me, you know, I've always thought that a little bit unusual that she should carry both. Um, you know, most people that I know either smoke a pipe or smoke cigarettes. I've, you know, it's rare I meet anyone that that goes from one to the other. Um, have you got any opinions on that? Hey, Howard, you smoke uh, pipes and cigarettes, don't you? Yes, but I am <clears throat> I am uh, a little bit different than the average person. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little, little bit different. Can I get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> I, I purely smoke pipes. So. Yeah. Well, is it? Are we assuming that there's cigarettes in the cigarette case, or was she using it just merely as a case to store something else? Or she found it. Yeah, just found it and thought it might be worth some down the line. Right. She yeah, was also found with a, she. Excuse me. She was also found with a handbill on her address to. Uh, what was it, Neil? From Frank Cater. He was a butcher in the area. He owned a butcher a butcher shop, or a grocery store in uh, Spitalfields. There was a handbill that. Um, was found on her in her possessions. It's not listed in the inventory. Yeah, I think that came from the press reports, didn't it? That she had I, a, a printed card for Frank Carter of three hundred five Bethnal Green Road. Right. Um, it, it wasn't on the official list of, of stuff, but it came from a later press report. Right. And these pipes that um, that that she possessed were probably really cheaply made clay pipes, weren't they? And ones that would break easily. 
Um, so for her to be carrying two of them, maybe not too out of the ordinary. If she had yeah. every living possession, she, which appears to be the case, you know, on her on her person. Um. Uh, anyone, Howard? You got another one? Sure. Um, Neil, now we're going to go into the macabre, buddy. <laughs> For the record, what what do you think is the most likely outcome of the organs that were taken from Mrs. Eddowes? Do you think they were cannibalized, discarded, saved, or other? Obviously, I feel, well, I think it's pretty straightforward that the organs were important to whoever Jack was, and he's removed um, um, organs from Chapman, who's later to take, well, supposedly take part from Keller. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's probably a trophy thing. Um, I do find it interesting that after the um, the Eddowes murder, um, Lusk, George Lusk, the um, chairman of the Vigilante Committee, received a, a portion of supposedly human kidney. And there is an actual quote in the letter that um, the, the, the other half of the kidney, he actually, the killer, actually fried and ate. Now, I was trawling through the letters, Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner's book, and I also went through um, Stuart and Don Rumblow's book about uh, the Scotland Yard Investigates, trying to find another reference to cannibalism. And I can't find anything on there. Not prior to this lust, lust letter anyway. So I find that fairly odd. That, 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 that the only letter that really mentions it is the lust letter, and it mentions ca- cannibalism in it. Um, right. So I don't think he would have discarded them unless he had to have discarded them. Unless somebody, whether it be at his lodgings or wherever he was staying, or whether it be on the street, um, were, were getting a little too close. Um, obviously, after a while, it, I mean, you'd have to have some form of uh, preservation, or they would have deteriorated after a while, and that may have happened. I, I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't know for certain. Um, I mean, we've got Tumblety as well, who collect, collected wounds allegedly. Um, so yeah, I mean it's not it's not improbable that he kept them. Well, speaking of the lust letter, what is your position on it? Do you believe that it's um, that it came from um, Adam's murderer? I think I'm with the majority and state that um, if you had to choose a letter, that would be the one. However, I don't think he would have communicated really. I mean, if he was going to send it, it was probably. Mm, I mean, it is a human kidney. He would have sent something with it to, to clarify. I mean, it, I'm, I, see, the way I look at it, I look at it as the Zodiac with Stein's shirt. He used to send off letters with uh, Paul Stein's shirt. Uh, it, well, with the picture of it and with a letter. I felt he could have done that with the apron as well, if Jack was going to, you know. Right. But um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think Jack communicated. I don't think he, he was that type of serial killer. I may be wrong. That's just my view. Well, in one of the um, letters, um, not the Lusk letter, but the um, this Saucy Jack postcard that came on October 1st, I believe that's the one that mentioned uh, clipping the ears off the victims and... I don't have it in front of me, but um, 
it 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 was it seemed to have, uh, there's a little bit of question as to whether uh, this uh, the saucy jack postcard I believe was the one that mentioned the, the double event this time the first one squealed a little bit is that is that right just uh, that's correct okay um, and this one was received on October first um, but there's some question as to whether it it was uh, mailed in time for the letter writer to have read the uh, reports. Uh, in the morning papers of October 1st to where he was able to get those details and also um, there's there's the police were under the impression of course that the Saucy Jack postcard was written by the same person who wrote the Dear Boss letter. Um, are, are you of the opinion that um, that n neither of those communications are, or especially the Saucy Jack postcard or the last letter or any of them, are, are legitimate communications from the killer then? That's Neat. me, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I think they're all, they're all false, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I think it's pretty much, I wouldn't say established, but, but the, the finger of uh, the accusing fingers points to uh, Mr. Bulling, the newspaper reporter. Right. The dear boss and the saucy jack letters. It's, I do believe the postal service in the Victorian period was a hell of a lot better than it is today. It seems that we've not progressed much. Um, I think there were up to three or four deliveries a day. Um, and the, like I say, the system was fairly rapid. So I, I can't see how it's improbable that um, whoever wrote it could have picked the information up from the early editions of the news reports uh, and, and sent it off. Um, I mean, it, it, unfortunately, I think it's the Saucy Jack letter. There, there is an actual fingerprint on there. Um, I mean, if these murders were committed oh, two or three years later, we may not have caught Jack the Ripper, but we certainly would have got whoever was involved on the uh, Saucy Jack letter. Certainly. All right, Neil, let me move on to the inquest report. Uh, what is your opinion of uh, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown's assertion that there was a, a modicum of professional ability in the removal of the kidney? How do you feel about that? Sorry, Hal, I think quite catch up. What did you say? Um, well, okay, if you didn't understand, uh, do you do you I'm agree not, I didn't, with? I didn't hear you. What, uh, oh, okay, I'm sorry. That. I'm sorry. Uh, do you agree with Frederick Gordon Brown, the the surgeon who uh, was at the Eddowes inquest, regarding the uh, degree or level of expertise in removing her kidney? Because he seems he's a, a few other doctors are at odds with him, and the majority of uh, ripperologists today seem to feel that there wasn't um, a modicum of expertise in the removal. How do you feel about that? But by expertise, what do you mean? Do you mean surgical skill or knowledge? Yes, or yeah, surgical skill. In, 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 I'm sorry, I should have been more specific. In locating and removing it, leaving one inch of the renal artery inside of her body. Um, the, the route he went through, which obviously was via the stomach, um, I don't know. <laughs> I think that he had anatomical knowledge. I'm not so sure about that he had skill. Um, the, the route he went through was, like I say, via the stomach. Um, the, the, to get through the intestines. Apparently, the the, uh, the kidney is covered by a membrane that, um, that you could easily basically you could easily overlook the kidney. So I have a feeling he may have had a, a knowledge, but skill, I don't know. But then again, I'm no doctor. Right. Um, sorry. 
Do you do you believe that um, her kidney was some sort of goal in its removal? Yeah. I mean, you, ju you know, if, ha having to go through all the um, the intestines and the other organs that are in front of the kidney, and then uh, upon locating the kidney, you know, taking it out and not wrenching it out, but removing it in the fashion that he did. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even if he didn't have a skill? Do you believe that uh, there was some kind of goal attached or some um, intrinsic meaning to the removal of the kidney? Seems to be targeting the kidney, yeah. Um, there was an idea, I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Scott Medine uh, from the casebook many years yeah. ago, should be many yeah. years ago. He ran mm -hmm. an idea uh, through, through me. Now, it's not something that I, I am in agreement with, but I did find very interesting. And that was, um, believe it or not, it was to do with uh, George Lusk. Um, I don't know if you're aware, his wife died in April 88 um, through um, organ failure. She had diabetes. Um, now, as a diabetic myself, I know the most common cause um, or the most catastrophic failure of the organ is, is the kidney, kidney organ failure. Um, there's no indication on Susanna's um, death certificate that she did die from this. But um, if she did, then Scott made, made a link between that and, and the, the kidney. And the fact that Lusk received the kidney, it would have been uh, a, a pretty annoying thing for Lusk to have received, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but, but that's a side issue. Um, yeah, I think he was targeted. I think he was certainly targeting the wound. I mean, obviously, with Chapman, um, he took that away with, with him as well. Um, um, yeah, I think I think it wouldn't surprise me if, if you know it's there. Why not? You know, he took it away. I always found it interesting uh, the incredible lack of light in Mitre Square and being able to find the bits that he was looking for. Um, in a, a past life, I used to work uh, in the operating room as a surgical nurse, and you know we've got lights and all the goodies and. You still have to hunt around some time to find the bits. And um, he was, you know, there was just virtually no light in there, you know, even if you want to count the candle up in the, uh, what, the second story window or whatever above the murder site. How in the heck did he do that? I mean, that that's just so incredible that he could get in there, find what he wants, and get out in, in the designated period of time. Yeah, it's quite phenomenal, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, I bet you couldn't name a surgeon that could do that. No, uh, no, I mean, you turn them loose and say, okay, I'm going to blindfold you, pretty much, almost, and I'm going to give you a bunch of clothes to cut through, and I'm going to give you a time frame, because there's two cops coming back this way, and, and no pressure there, dude, you know, uh, <laughs> and find this bit and carry it off. I, 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 that's always astounded me. That really has. And then have time to mutilate her face. Yeah, still, well, oh, well, I have, oh, look, I've got another half, you know, 30 seconds here. You know, whoa, that's, incredib that's incredibly cool. Yeah, back to uh, what Howard was saying about the inquest report. Didn't they draw a distinction between a uh, student, uh, someone who uh, was a student um, who possessed some kind of surgical skill, like a medical student, as opposed to a professional surgeon? There seemed to have been an either-or. Either, and either, uh, uh, the I thought I was under the impression that the consensus, or at least, uh, some of the opinions, were that he was. Um, uh, the murderer uh, was either a, a, a slaughterman, a butcher, or something, or the possibility of a of a medical student surgeon. 
but not uh, uh, a professional surgeon. It's like they drew a line between <laughs> um, someone who had some, like you were saying, Neil, someone who had some some rudimentary knowledge as opposed to someone who practices it as a for you know as a living. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I know I mean, it's getting into suspectology in a way to to be discussing whether or not the murderer had medical uh, knowledge, but um, but I think there was was that distinction made between a professional surgeon and 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 a medical student. I think 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 that uh, was made because um, the discrepancy um, between the doctors in in uh, the, the um, area of skill. Um, obviously, as you said, Jonathan, um, a medical student would have necessarily that much skill, whereas a surgeon would have. Um, so, whilst they had the knowledge and maybe a little skill, it's not you know not total skill as as Jana pointed out, surgeons and so on and so forth. Right. And one more thing before um, we, I let uh, Mike and everybody else talk, um, is is I want to get this in as as far as the Lusk letter. Um, some um, ripperologists, um, the person I'm thinking of off the top of my head right now, Stan Russo, would say that um, um, the incident with Marsh, um, the man entering her leather shop and requesting um, the uh, address of George Lusk, um, seems to indicate everything seems to match up that the individual who approached Marsh to get Lusk's address was the person who sent the Lusk uh, kidney and letter um, based on the address and what was lacking in the address from what she gave him into what was received by George Lusk. So do you, do you, does everyone else kind of follow that kind of logic that she, she's, she saw the person who sent the Lusk kidney? Anyone? Uh. You know what I'm talking about, Howard? Yeah, I I believe that uh, I believe it's a possibility that the person who sent the Lusk letter was the uh, person who went in Miss Marsh's uh, shop, but uh, not definitely. I I'm I'm up in the air and about up in the air about that. Whoever it was was obviously targeting Lusk, so the simple fact that they've inquired about Lusk's address, you know, is a heavy indicator that it's probable that it is the guy. It's not as if it's sent to an address; it's addressed to Lusk. You know what I mean? Right, and the number was missing off of his his uh, street or something like that, which is right. just, which is just like the information she gave to the man who inquired uh, of, about Lusk in the leather shop. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a factor in, in on the plus side that that was the one and the same man. I would think. Yeah, I would agree with you, John. Um, Mike. Yep, Neil, I have a question. Uh, what do you think of the facial mutilations? Do you think they were intentional or a byproduct of the attack? Um, a little bit of both. Um, I think um, I think there may have been some, some nicks to the face that were caused during the cut on the nose, you know, the slicing of the nose. But obviously the nicks to the eyes seem pretty, pretty much placed. Um, now, depends whether you make, I mean, obviously, intentional, he meant to do them, but whether they make, they were done intentional to form a pattern of design, 
I don't know what seems so. I mean, certainly with the Inex, it's, it's a bit of a strange coincidence that both of them were nicked very much the similar level, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's like he's... It's not a nice phrase, but like he's playing. He's, he's creating, he's doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, Jana, do you have... Well, I, I, you know, I, I wondered, like, keep looking at the autopsy photo here because I've got this stuff up in front of me, or actually the, the, the uh, before the uh, post-mortem. And I note that uh, the way they've drawn the, uh, the uh, mutilations is uh, originally the, the cut was down, down the center of the chest, and then it angles to the right around and then back down, almost like they would be doing a post-mortem because you would work around the, the umbilicus to, to open up the, the, the uh, abdominal cavity. I find that kind of interesting because if he was just sort of hacking away, that wouldn't happen. And, and if, if I'm seeing this wrong, please let me know. But that's, that's sort of the way the diagram looks. And I, 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 to me, that kind of tips it a little closer to somebody who had some anatomical knowledge or at least had watched a post-mortem or been in a, a mortuary and, and watched something like that so that they, they understood that, that cut, though. Uh, so I throw it out. What, what do you folks think on that? There's some sort of method to the madness is what you're saying, right, Jenna? Yeah, well, the fact that they had seen this sort of thing before and they knew to make yeah. that cut, or they had... And you can watch it and you wouldn't remember it necessarily, but if you had done it, then you right. would automatically go around that right side. And, and, you know, as I said, maybe I'm seeing that wrong, but that's the way the... the uh, and it may just be purely that's the way the cut went. You know, when he was busily cutting, his knife went that direction. But I just yeah. found it kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Bond um, mentioned that, that he, he around around it was like um, he basically the belly button was on the flap of skin, wasn't it? Um, and that's, I, I didn't realise that, Jana, about that. That's an interesting point, you know. You know the fact that they cut around the umbilicus. Mm-hmm. Rather than cutting through it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it was me, not that I ever would, but um, that's the kind of route I'd go straight up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike and Hall? Yeah, uh, Neil, what are your uh, views on the alleged shawl um, that was said to have belonged to Catherine Eddowes? Is this the uh, Amos Simpson shawl, isn't it? It is the one, yeah. The guy's supposed to have pilfered, or less, but everybody else was looking the other way, stuffed <laughs> it in his teeth, <laughs> and um, stuck it yeah. under his bed for years, yeah. <laughs> and it. Um, uh, I think, um, if I'm correct, I, uh, B.C. Simpson w- was was in the force. Was he twenty odd years before 1888? Didn't he join in 1860s or something? The guy would have known procedure. So, in order for him to do that, was obviously uh, against procedure. We have Sergeant Jones who um, came across. I think it was three buttons when Edo's body was being removed. He immediately pre- presented him to Inspector Collard. Now, that, there were three tiny buttons. Um, a great big shawl, which it would be a sizable piece of cloth. Um, um, for him not to present it is absolutely scandalous. Um, the only thing going for it is the, the description of it, which matched um, Eddowes' uh, skirts. But the fact that, that nobody reports her wearing a shawl um, is lays heavily against it as well. Um, personally, I don't think I don't take take much credence in that story. 
There was kind of an uh, an opinion that the material that the shawl was made out of would have been something that was worth more than what she would have hanging around. Yeah, I mean, I've seen photos of it. To me, it's more of a tablecloth than a shawl. It's quite an extravagant piece, and, and you're right, Jonathan. Uh, for her, I mean, she's got a coat, she's got various jackets, so on and so forth. A shawl as well, something like that. Especially when, when poor old uh, John pawned his boots. It, it's very strange for her to have honour at the time of death. But like I said, I don't take much into it. Yeah. I've always wondered how, it, how and when or if Kelly ever did get his boots that were put into the hot <laughs> shop. Did, does anyone ever, did anyone ever find that out? No. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you always want to know how those stories end, don't you? You go, did he ever get his boots, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the I, police probably retrieved them for him, I would imagine. Yes, and then he had to try to get them out of the comps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they probably weren't worth much at two and six, but still, they were his yeah. boots. Now, it, now, that always begs the question, did he have, like, a? he couldn't have had a spare pair. Is he walking around, you know, pardon my ignorance, but is he, like, walking around barefoot, or what is he doing? <laughs> I, I, you know, it had to be a spare pair, I'm assuming, a really cheap spare pair. Or, or Say that, John, there are, I mean, I've got a book by William Fishman, Bill Fishman's book of the East End, then and now. Um, there are photos in there of, it's more children, to be honest with you, who are mm-hmm. barefoot. And there is the odd one or two child that, uh, children that's uh, got got their boots on with you know split ends so on and so forth. But quite mm-hmm. a few of them were barefoot, so I don't think it was uncommon for you know for a few hours or a few days or a day at least. The problem I've got is it's a 55 year old man, you know. I mean he's also mm-hmm. a market labourer at a, a fruit market, wasn't he? So yeah, it, it, it does make you wonder. But it's not like yeah. I say it's not uncommon. Yeah, it's raining that night. It's you know, it's just it's yeah. yeah. I go oh, you know, it's coming to an un- unseasonable time of year, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. a, a yeah, bit of winter. Yeah, yeah. And it, I, I always wondered about that because I thought, well, if they had two pairs, they wouldn't pawn it. They would just sell them rather than pawn them. You know, right. and then I thought, eh, okay, he put on the the crappier pair so he could wear those. white and I thought, no, it just didn't work. You know, if they're down to that, then they had to do the boots and do their yeah. thing. You know, and I go, wow. Yeah. Like a, you know, the proverbial you know, hobo walking down the street with the um, with the bandana full of their possessions. You can just imagine him mm-hmm. uh, with, the sho- with the shoelaces tied, you know, tossed over his shoulder if he had a spare pair of boots. Mm-hmm. He could have picked up an extra pair at the lodging house or something, you know, stole someone else's yeah. or while they Tell were sleeping. Yes. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we've talked about the kidney and the... Um, and the Saucy Jack postcard. Another thing that arose out of the Eddowes murder was the Goldston Street graffiti. Ah. <laughs> what? Well, ha- Howard's frothing at the mouth to, uh, yes, he is. To, to, to get something in uh, on, on the GSG. What do you have to say about that, Howard? Neil, what do I got to do to convince you, buddy? What do I have to do to convince you that it's legit? You can try. <laughs> <laughs> now, the um, close is going to go. 
I, your, your, your argument against the Golson Street graffiti is just about the best that I could that I could come up with if, if I was in your position. But let me ask you this: what, what's, um, his, what's his position? Well, his no. position, he is totally. <laughs> he and I do not see eye to eye on the Golson Street graffiti, but that's that's fine. That's what makes world ripperology go around. Um, what, what do you? What is the best explanation? that you can come up with right now, Neil. Uh, in, it's been two or three years since we had our little um, article in Ripperologist magazine going back and forth about it. Has anything changed in your mind, or is there a new reason why you think that, that, that graffiti has been linked to the apron? Um, no, I'm only <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, let me clarify my position on, on the graffiti. Um, I don't think that Jack the Ripper wrote it. However, I can't prove that. Therefore, it's it's possible that he did write it. But um, I mean, for me, it's it, it's it's an ambiguous statement. It, it says quite a few different things. Um, one's the, the most common one, which is a, a finger of blame against the Jews. Um, the way the other way you can read it, uh, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Is is uh, Quite uh, is more of a defiant statement as well. I mean, it's it's like uh, we have on the uh, Michael will be able to bear this out on the um, pound coin. We have various nations: the Welsh, the Scots, the English. On the Scots, is um, I think it's the neo impun lasset, which means nobody treats us with impunity and gets away with it. It's quite a defiant, you know. Nobody treats his Jews without good reason, you know. Rather, nobody blames his Jews without good reason. However, there was something I came across in the Irish Times. Um, uh, I can't remember the date of it now. Um, apparently, there was quite a few people that um, made the way to the mortuary to view Edo's body in terms of identification. The, the, I think it was two or three days before uh, Kelly came forward. Um, one of them was a guy who stated that um, he recognised the woman as uh, a lady by the name, or rather the pseudonym, or whatever you want to call it, the alias. Um, Phoebe the Jewess, which I find which is quite, you know, especially when you when you, you read the the, um, the, the Grito as the, the Jews are the men that will, be, will not be blamed for nothing, which is obviously the other name that uh, Kelly's allegedly given, uh, or rather um, Eddowes is allegedly given at, um, at the Bishopsgate Police Station. Um, Eddowes had a, was a child lady for, for the Jews as well. The Old Gate High Street, where she was found, was heavily populated with Jews and there was quite a few Jewish butchers. I don't know if uh, anybody's read Scott Nelson's wonderful dissertation about the, um, the suspect that lived in Butchers Row. But he gives quite a detailed description of the trades and businesses and the type of people around there. So there is quite a heavy connection between Edo's and the Jews. A lot of people go along with the Stride connection and the Imperial uh, Club connection. Obviously Stride was found next to the uh, International Educational Club, um, which was um, heavily populated by Jews, and also the fact that Duke Street, the passage, um, church passage, was virtually opposite, not entirely opposite, the Imperial Club, which is another Jews club. But, but Edo's seems to have a lot of connections with Jews. You know, I know it's pretty easy because of the area. Um, that said, I still think it's highly unlikely that, that, that uh, Jack did write it. I just cannot see why he did not make any reference in the graffito to any of the murders, to Edo's, to the apron, to anything like that. Uh, but, sorry, Hal. 
Oh, no, you, um, it's vagueness and the fact that it doesn't uh, clarify anything about the uh, two murders that night. Sam Yeah, the yeah. But like I say, I cannot say for certain that he didn't, you know, and I can't believe in it for certain. I can't dismiss it. It will still always be there unless something else comes up. I don't think anybody can dismiss it. Then again, on the other hand, I don't think anybody can say, yes, that certainly is something that Jack did. You know? I think I, I can see both sides of the argument and I feel both are just as valid. End of. Okay. Right, and, um, and, uh, my my two cents on that is that um, when the police officer uh, who discovered the piece of apron first saw it, his first inclination wasn't to look up and see that there was graffiti written there, but he immediately assumed that there was another murder inside uh, of uh, Goldstone Street, uh, the, the lodging house. So he like actually went up several flights of stairs looking for a body, a la Martha Tabram. Um, yeah. um, only to come downstairs and then look up and see what what was really in small writing. Um, I mean, the size. Some people, you know, have it, even illustrations at the time have the size of the the actual text pretty exaggerated in it. Um, well, and um, long was that? Sorry, Jonathan. Uh, long was actually looking for blood spots upon the wall. He wasn't looking for writing. He right. Just sort of look, he was looking for blood splatter on the wall. Right, so if um, the murderer was attempting to draw attention to um, himself uh, by writing the graffiti on the wall there, I mean, in a way he succeeded, but really it's kind of a fluke that he succeeded in doing that, because um, you, you know, you'd think there would have been just an equal chance that the graffiti could have been ignored. Um, and uh, Martin Fido um, had mentioned the possibility that the graffiti... Um, was a leftover from the prior day's business um, that was being conducted on the street and that it could have been written by a Gentile um, who was dissatisfied with the business practices of one of the Jews that he may have bought something from um, uh, to when they have the market, you know, right outside the doors. Um, and um, And... Meaning that I think he brought, you know, if the Gentile would have, would have bought some shoddy merchandise and tried to return it or whatever, you know, and and got the response that no, we're not responsible for for this, you know, that that kind of a thing. So there are many other possibilities. Um, what do you what What is your opinion on this, Jana? I've always had trouble with it. How Hal, going to just love me? Uh, I've always had trouble with it uh, because it just seemed too weird. Uh, the fellow, if he, if this, you know, okay, we tie Kate Eddowes' uh, apron to Kate, who's now getting cold in Mitre Square, and he takes the time to wander over, and, and admittedly, it's a route that he might have followed, but still, he wanders over and goes, ah, this is a great place to ditch this, this uh, apron, and I'm going to write, you know, scrawl some graffiti here, rather neatly, about the Jews. Well, there is, as it was just pointed out, there are Jews everywhere. I mean, the East End was full of Jews. That was that was Jews and Irish, you know. So why there? <laughs> did he have somebody he didn't like in the building, or was it a warning? Or in my case, I really think it's just something that just happened to be there, and and they connected it with uh, Kate Eddowes' uh, 
Apron, I think it was um, Judy Stock who once suggested that perhaps Jack had cut himself during the, the mutilation of Eddowes and he'd torn off the uh, apron to, to uh, bind the wound. And then when he finally got somewhere, he just dropped the, the apron, realized that the apron would be a problem and, and dropped it and, and moved on. So, no, I've never been real sure about that. I've always thought that was just a little too coincidental that he would stop and do this hours. And I think it was a few hours later, wasn't it? Am I correct that it was sometime later after the after the, uh, the Eddowes murder? It was um, 2.55. Eddowes was, well, she was found by Rockies at 1.45. So it's yeah, over an hour yeah. later. Yeah, an hour later. Yeah, so he's wandering around going, what do I do with this? This. Oh, hey, I'll do a little bit of it. No, I've never really... Uh, that one just always kind of didn't really sync with me, and I, I don't have a really excellent argument of why not. It just, on a gut level, it just didn't work for me. Right, and just to tie that one, I, I mean, I don't. I guess Howard's... I don't know what Mike's opinion on this. Howard seems to be the only one so far who believes that this could be written by Jack, but there is graffiti all over the place. Um, and... You know, who knows if he would have picked the next um, entryway down, what, what kind of graffiti could have been written on that wall. And yeah, been the Catholics or the Masons or the, you know, yeah, and then, <laughs> who knows. Yeah, God, God forbid what we, we could be discussing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the royal family, oh no. <laughs> yeah, God save the queen, and then, you know, that's yeah. where we're at. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> East end of London, I don't think. Mm. I wish they did. They anybody ever make a documentation of the kind of graffiti that was written at that time? Is there like a collection somewhere that would be fascinating to read? That's a good idea, Jenna. Yeah, I wonder if you know if somebody actually wrote it down. You know, of course, I I don't tend to write down the graffiti I see unless it's you know really interesting, yeah. but. But uh, most of it I can't read, but it, it would, that would have been so fascinating because it would have been an insight into the, the psychology of the people at the time. I don't know. Uh, Mike, do you have a question? Yeah, this one's basically going back to uh, Mitre Square. Um, I just wanted to get Neil's opinion on whether or not Police Constable James Harvey actually went down Church Passage to the edge of Mitre Square or just looked down church passage from the street. Ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I personally felt that he did go down um, church passage simply because he had duties to perform down there. Um, I don't see why he would lie and yeah, probably he was having a um, like up or probably he was making up time. I know Stuart Evans has made the point and he's a police officer, I'm not, so I think it's a valid point. That sometimes um, officers um, made up time by missing out certain parts of the beat on one on one sweep, and then conducted it on another sweep. It's a valid point, and one of them that I'm not going to argue with Stuart over. Um, although I will state that Harvey was actually under testimony when um, sorry was under oath sorry when he was giving his testimony. So I, I'd say. He would have gone down there, but I can't prove it. I can't say for certain. Now, were they moving it? Was there? Wasn't there supposed to be required to move at night at like one and a half miles an hour or something like that? And it was two and a half during the day. They had some set yeah. rate. What would happen is that they gather in the police. If I just go through the beginnings of a beat, and what would happen is they'd um, they'd uh, gather at the police station, obviously, and they'd be marched out in single file by the beat sergeant 
Um, now, what they do, they'll be allocated a beach prior in the, in the actual police station. Um, quite a few officers have their beats for years. I mean, there's a, there's a case that AP Wolf brought up about Einhoff. Um, two separate incidents um, that happened, I think, just spanned something like five, ten years. So, beat officers usually kept to the same beats, quite a few of them, but for a numerous amount of years. Um, so, they'd be marched out and they'd be dropped off at the various points. Now, they'd have to conduct their beat one of two ways, either left-handed or right-handed. Obviously, if they're doing right-handed, then they'll be taking right-hand turns all the time to loop back to the starting point. Left-handed, they're just doing the beat in reverse and they'll take left-handed turns. Um, now, their, their regulation speed would have to be stated as two and a half miles an hour. Now, obviously, there may be various incidents or things that happen, things to check that would hamper that um, that speed. So it wasn't strictly you know, no enforced. There were times where, where they, they missed certain things out. Now the beat sergeant, and I do believe the inspector, used to go out ad hoc to various beats. They'd, they'd sort of um, calculate where the beat officer should be at that particular moment in time and basically wait there for them. And uh, I, believe that, well, I believe that's what was happening with the case of Mackenzie when she was found murdered down Castle Alley. I think it was, I can't remember if it was Andrews or Mackenzie's, but there was a beat sergeant meeting up with the police at constable, uh, the beat constable, um, having his little tete-a-tete, make sure everything was okay. That's another reason why the sergeants used to meet up, to see if there were any problems, anything that was happening untoward. And they had their little conflab and they went their separate ways, only for the sergeant to be called back seconds later for the, um, the, the, the fact that the uh, beat police found um, Mackenzie's body. So, so they were looked over, they weren't just sent out, off you go lads and do your best. Mm -hmm. So, so they, they were being monitored at certain stages. But, um, but like I said, I can see Stuart's points and I, I do agree with it. It's also important, again, for the, I know, I know this is in the book of regulations, for the beat officers to get to know every single shopkeeper and every single pub landlord on his beat in case they were required, which in the east end of London, there were quite a few shopkeepers and quite a few landlords. <laughs> so, so and, and, and again, with Morris, Morris got together with Watkins every so often um, to discuss various incidents. There was the packing case incident in um, Mitre Square, um, the Burke incident, where Morris had found this chap Burke basically stealing a champagne case um, and the arresting officer on that Watkins. So they did liaise with each other, they did liaise with um, the night watchman and, and the pub landlords. Obviously that would have hampered the beats. So, like I say, I can, I can understand where Stuart's coming from. I'm not stating that Harvey, for certain, did go down the passes, but I don't see any reason why he would, would 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 lie because it was fairly common knowledge to, to the police officers that you know that sort of thing happened. I don't think he would have been berated for it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, the uh, the the city thought that the you know the city cops thought that they were probably less likely because because all the murders at that point had been over in Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Did do you think they were feeling a little like? Okay, he'll stay over there, and we don't really have to worry about him over here. Or, or were they? I would assume they were still as vigilant. But I'm wondering if they felt that they were a little bit immune since all the killings had not fallen into the city's 
boundary at that point. Do, do you get any sense of that, whether they, or, or were they just as as uh, as vigilant as as the you know the London Met? Um, I think they were very wary of it. I know that they were given instructions to watch suspicious couples on the night mm -hmm. that Eddowes was murdered. Um, whatever suspicious couples are, so they were obviously <laughs> aware of what was happening. Yeah. They were yeah. obviously aware of what was happening over Houndsditch. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that I mean, this is another reason why Harvey, I suspect, would be more vigilant than, than many other city PC because his beat actually bordered onto the Met territory. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's he he would have been very aware of that, and he wasn't inexperienced. He had a few good years service as well. Um, so also the fact that the, that you've got House Altrum and Marriott, the two DCs or two, mm -hmm. three DCs, sorry, work in the area. They were also on the lookout. Now, there's no indication that they were on the lookout for Jack, but I would have been. I, 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 I would have thought the reason that they were placed out there, plain close police officers were put out there in that area of Olgate. Um, they were they were covering themselves. So they, they were bracing themselves for something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I figured eventually uh, they, he'd work. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they were determined that they'd be ready for him mm -hmm. if he did venture across. Hmm. Well, can you imagine what it'd be like to be a, a copper at, in 1888, wandering around in the dark? <laughs> 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 Admittedly, they have a bullseye lantern, but uh, you know, no firearms, no nothing. One lovely two-tone police whistle, and oh lord, that had scared the dickens out of me. <laughs> Unfortunately, the city PCs didn't have the whistle. Yeah, no, they didn't. No, it was just the mat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And can you imagine what that would be like, just trudging around in the dark? <laughs> I mean, it must be pointed out on um, Harvey's beat. I mean, I'm saying it would be vision, but on Harvey's beat, there, there would have been, because of the area, there was quite a few uh, Jewish jewellers in the area. Mm -hmm. so I suspect he would be more, as I've mentioned in the article in the, in the talk, he'd be more wary of probably a robbery or anything like that than, than the murderer. But that said, he was given directive to keep an eye out the suspicious couple. Well, okie dokie. Um, it's a little bit over an hour. Uh, do we have any final questions for Neil Bell while we have him here? Mike and Hall, anyone? No, not for me. Okay. Uh, one, um, I mean, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up, uh, but uh, is everyone cool with that? Sure. Um, one of the things that... Um, came from Eddowes being killed on city territory instead of in the Met was that uh, all of a sudden all these rewards started to be offered for the apprehension of her killer. Um, you had a total of 1,500 pounds um, if you include the, uh, the Commissioner of the City of London Police offering 500 pound reward, the Lord Mayor offering 500 pound reward, and the Star newspaper offering a 500 pound reward. Um, and that he added um, even more pressure on you know the Met who had been going through this whole uh, public um, you know controversy of why why uh, no one was offering rewards and not that it did any good of course in this case but um, it 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 does kind of um, point to how how different these these two uh, police forces operated you know. Anyone have any comments about that? How 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 quickly the city was uh, 
jumped at the chance of the offering reward. Now, maybe it was in um, response to the criticism that was leveled at the Met um, from the prior murder cases. But so that, the Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Yana. Oh, okay. Well, if you think about how much money that is in that time period, 1,500 pounds, I mean, that's incredible. Uh, that, would, that is, talk about bringing people out of the woodwork to try to find someone. I thought it was a, a really brilliant idea. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. But, you know, a, a professional man at that time period was making 700 pounds a year. So 1,500 for turning over your crazy uncle in the cellar was uh, a good chunk of change. Yeah. And I'm surprised it didn't work. I really am. Yeah, Neil? Well, I was going to say, I think the, the fact that um, Stride was murdered on the same night had a major impact. I mean, like I say, a double event is it, kind of frightening. It's, it's, uh, you couldn't write about that sort of thing. Uh, so the hysteria would have been s something else. I think there was a great fear of, of um, writing in the streets, so on and so forth, you know? So I think that had an impact on, on what was you know, being put forward. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, it didn't amount to anything. But. Um, all right, guys, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Um, I want to thank Neil Bell for being our guest today, and you're certainly welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And it was really nice having Jan Oliver on also, and uh, she's going to be on again here uh, in the near future. <laughs> Good to warn the, the people about that so they can <laughs> take precautions. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've been I've been planning it all out uh, uh, in advance. So uh oh, now yeah. now we're doomed. <laughs> yes. uh, we'll have to talk about it after the show. Yes. Uh, you have been listening to Rippercast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This was episode thirteen, uh, Miter Square Revisited with Neil Bell, um, with. Uh, Howard Brown in Philadelphia. Mike Covell was in Hull. Jana Oliver is for now in Atlanta, Georgia. And Neil Bell is in Leicester in the UK. And we are a weekly podcast. And we'll be back next Sunday uh, with a two-for-one show. The first half will be um, about 20 minutes speaking to um, uh, the uh, theater group who are putting on the, the show that's going on in the East End right now about Mary Kelly and Joe Barnett. And then we'll have a full-length show to follow that. And it may be split up into two um, episodes. I haven't decided if I'm going to combine it all into one or not yet. That'll depend on what exactly is going to be the subject of our next uh, full-length episode. So stay tuned for that. And thanks, everyone, for participating in the podcast today. And thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week.